I want to build the best seed stage venture firm on the planet. And I'm going to do this for the next 30 plus years. About to go into a board meeting of one of the most exciting companies on the planet right now. After starting a company from a napkin and taking that through to potentially impact one of the largest food value chains in the world. Welcome to Brick by Brick, episode 18, with Mike Annunziata, founding partner of Also Capital, co-founder of Farther Farms, and board member at Varda Space. This is going to be a big one. I wanted to start just by saying I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Um, a few years ago, I would have like dreamt of being able to have conversations with people like yourself, um, with everything you've accomplished. So yeah, it's really, it's a, it's a nice moment, and I'm, I'm really glad to get to speak to you today. Maybe you could open up with a sort of brief history of Mike and how you got to what you're doing today. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, so I've been in venture and startups for about a decade now. Um, started at the, actually started my career at the Soros Family Office in New York when I thought I was going to be a lawyer uh, and then decided, kind of got the investment bug while I was there working closely with the investment teams on, on their transactions and on different things on the regulatory and the legal side and had an opportunity to go work at the Cornell Endowment for about three and a half years as an allocator, most of the time on private equity and venture, uh, but did cover a lot of different asset classes and got my CFA while I was there. And that really taught me a lot about kind of where the bar was for kind of exceptional investing talent and what that looked like and how to generate, you know, truly great returns and, and what that looked like as well. Um, and, and they sent me to, to business school. Uh, so did that after a couple of years at the endowment at Johnson, uh, and, uh, in business school did two big things. One, I was a investment partner at Dormer fund, which is where my kind of pre-seed seed investing journey started on the direct side. Uh, and I started what the market would now call a deep tech company. Um, it was a food tech company at the time that I started it in 2016, focused on doing shelf life extension for value-added food products using high-pressure carbon dioxide. Um, and we started that, me and a co-founder in a lab at Cornell, uh, took the business plan from a napkin through to closing our Series B about two months ago, led by Strategic, um, kind of built that up to 30 people and a 25,000-square-foot pilot facility in upstate New York. I had product in the market for six, nine months as part of a, a phase of development that we were working on. And now the thing's kind of in a good good place to go on for the next little journey. When And I transitioned to that, uh, transitioned to a board role uh, in that company about two months ago, a company called Farther Farms. Uh, transitioned to a board role about two months ago after the Series B closed to be full-time on my early stage investing activities, which kind of started like a lot of founders as angel investing personally, um, investing alongside friends as angels, then running small SPVs, dating back as far as you know, early 2019, really is when we started. Uh, and we've had a lot of early success, uh, no IPOs yet, but a lot of early success, couple small <laughs> exits that have that have that have done well, um, and a, a really cool portfolio. Most importantly, really great, ambitious, smart founders that we've been able to back uh, over the last couple of years. And for me. Uh, a really kind of hair on fire opportunity to lean in full time on that brand that we kind of had have slowly built, um, backing really, really, really great folks and, and entrepreneurs and do that full time and, and start building the firm. So uh, that's me at a professional level, at a personal level, uh, wife and, and two, two little girls living in New York City um, and just kind of enjoying the chaos, uh, but also the, 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 the wonderful 
thing that is kind of life and building a family in your 30s. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, what, what a career so far. And I'm going to do my best, everyone listening, to try and touch on all those points because each of those could probably be a podcast episode okay. in itself. Yep. <laughs> but off air, I asked you what the best pitch deck you've ever seen was. And then you referred to a conversation you had with Will, who's one of the founders of Varda, mm-hmm. rather than um, necessarily a pitch deck and that conversation. So I thought that'd be a great place to start. If you could tell the story about what is Varda, who is Will, and what did you talk about on the rooftop? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so for those who are not aware, obviously, so Varda is the first to be commercializing in-space manufacturing and microgravity uh, accessible to commercial partners across you know, pharmaceutical applications, uh, communications applications, research applications. Uh, started in 2020 by Will and Delia Sprouhoff, who's a partner now, a partner at Founders Fund. Um, and Will and I have been you know, friends for a long time and angel investing together under the also umbrella for, for a bunch of years. And I remember him getting a phone call from, from Delian and then uh, calling me and telling me about it. And I, when I heard the idea, thought, this is kind of crazy. It was in-space manufacturing. Um, but I remember him having a very unique ability to articulate why the technical risks and the business opportunities were at the sweet spot of difficulty and the right moment in time to really uh, have the right degree of risk to be taking and still generate a venture return. And, and to, to your illusion of, of the conversation on the roof, but, you know, we were at, on the roof with, with some friends one evening, uh, I want to say it was late August, early September, shortly after he'd started looking at it. And he spent probably two hours walking us through kind of the, the engineering, the history of, of low cost reentry capsules and what's happening now of the cost of launch and how all these things uh, would this the, come together to give this particular moment in time the right opportunity to build a Varda space. Um, and taking what seemed like a crazy concept and, and illustrating through conviction and enthusiasm, but also you know, patient education for those less technical than, than, than others, uh, why now was the right opportunity. And I think that's something that, um, you know, I've seen versions of this a couple different times, whether it's, you know, Doug Burnauer walking us through nuclear power at Radiant, whether it's through Karan and Neil Kunjur walking us through um, reaction wheel design and electric propulsion for large satellites, these kinds of things, it's, it's, it's a common through thread of the best founders building technical solutions, being able and confident to walk the less technical investor types through what they're doing in a way that makes it easy for them to understand. And that's what you have to do for attracting, retaining all sorts of talent. That's what you have to do for gaining customers, for raising capital. Uh, it's, it's really one of the most important skills. So that's one of the ones to your question that really stands out for me. Fascinating. So let's dig into that a bit deeper. Do you think this is an innate ability that Will had, or do you think he took time to build that idea and storyline? Because the best storytellers throughout history have used like, I'm not sure if you've heard of story shapes where you say like, what could be, what is at the moment, what could be, what is at the moment and the contrast between them, um, that draws emotion out of people. So I'm wondering if you, if he gave you that sort of talk or whether it was just pure, this is the tech, this is the opportunity, this is the market. What, what sort of conversation yeah, I, was it? I, I, think, I think you're right in that, like the way I would say it a little differently is the best 
stories elicit emotion. And venture is such an early game, especially at the early stage, you know, first check investing. It's all about emotion because it's what it takes. It's the input that it takes to overcome the difficulties and the challenges and the uncertainties of the market that you're going to face. Uh, you have to be impassioned about whatever the problem is that you're solving. Now, that needs to be built on a foundation of pragmatic structuring and de-risking of risks. Uh, so you need somebody who has the technical understanding, the ability to build the team to go actually execute the plan. But there's lots of very exciting opportunities every day that are pitched to venture capitalists. What is the thing that's going to separate yours from the others? And oftentimes it can be the emotion, the enthusiasm, the joy with which you're able to tell a story and bring people on a journey. And yeah, I think to, to, to come back to, to Will and Bart, I think one of my favorite ones is when Will and says, hey, you'll know we're successful when you can pitch a tent in the Utah desert and see a capsule, Varda capsule streaming back into the atmosphere every night of the week. Um, that's visceral for people. And you're like, wow, that actually would be cool. And, and your mind can, can build on that in a way that builds more excitement without the founders even needing to be in the room. Um, and that's, that's a starting point, right? You know, technical diligence comes later, market mapping can come later, but you get that energy that you get, that enthusiasm that you get from envisioning that future reality really makes it worth you know, doing the deep dives to make sure that you have conviction around some of the other things that you need to, to do on your diligence, on the diligence side. That is an amazing image of the capsules coming back. Yeah. Cause yeah. I, I feel like people, I've said this before on the podcast, how many SaaS founders are there out there? There's loads. It's very easy to imagine a new productivity software. I mean, it's still a huge challenge to build it into a successful company. I'm not taking away from that, but to have the awareness that you can make a capsule that goes into low earth orbit and then enables new types of manufacturing is an incredible thing. So whether you call it deep tech founders or frontier founders, I'd like to know what you think the difference between those are. And you, you are one yourself. So where do you, how do you position yourself in, in sort of information flows? to find out where these opportunities are if you are someone who sees yourself as more than just a software founder? Um, so just, just make sure I understand the question. So the question is, how do I position myself to, to find deep tech opportunities or is it how do I differentiate yeah, I guess deep tech? If, if you say you're an aspiring founder and you log on to Twitter, you're going to see like a load of things like this, is how you find a viral loop to grow your marketplace startup. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're not going to see this is the cost of lower orbit satellites and it's coming down. Yep. So how, how can you set up some serendipity or conversations or get to a place where you're starting to spot those sorts of opportunities, similarly to this opportunity that you saw um, with Father Farms? Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, I think that's part of the reason why we're very focused and we say this on our website and it's, it's very genuine and authentic. We invest at the people stage. We're investing in people. Um, and we're trying to invest in people that have the ambition and the vision to build a venture scale company, uh, how we do that and where we think we can win and, 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 and get excited and, and help them sell and help them attract and retain talent is a function of where we have an edge. And maybe that's in, 
more technical businesses. Maybe that's in more engineering heavy businesses. Maybe that's in, you know, these deep tech businesses, however you want, may want to say it. Um, but I think the big thing is to find whatever it is that is authentic to you from a technical perspective, and then try to figure out how you can craft a narrative that has both equal parts, big, bold ambition, but also pragmatic near-term execution to a short-term, short-time to value. And the reality is, if you're going to raise venture dollars, the, those, the number of those opportunities don't really grow on trees. So I think it's as much about understanding, it's, it's, it's a rare founder to find that can be exceptional technically, be exceptional storytelling, be exceptional at, at recruiting and retaining talent, but also be tied in on the business and the market side enough to know where we are on the technology cost curve, what the power dynamics within a market structure are within a certain, you know, what the power dynamics within the value chain are and know how to play that from a time and space um, perspective. I think that's a rare thing to find. And that's one of the reasons why we have conviction um, when we invest in founders, like we try to bet big is because we know how rare those kinds of people that can be nimble across all those different areas are. Um, and that if you marry that with conviction towards a certain idea, authenticity of pursuing a certain solution, building a certain company in a certain culture, you'll find value. You'll find value. Hmm. Interesting. And it sounds like that's a very holistically balanced founder. It's not someone who's specialized super deep in one thing and become incredible at that. They've got the whole thing and all the awareness. Um, yeah. As well as an understanding of what they're personally interested in. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. So, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, so how do you think you... Do you have any ideas on how you developed that sort of intuitive understanding of yourself and what you're interested in? Or how you block out the noise of, you know, like finance jobs and all these sorts of things? How do you find yeah. that through yeah, line yeah. in yourself? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know that I have any great wisdom on this front, other than to say, more often than not, it's not people that are saying like, "I want to start a company. What should I do?" It's almost like this imperative of, "I have this expertise. I've lived a life of intellectual curiosity and 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 exceptional execution and ambition." Um, now is the time that I have to do this, right? Um, I think if you waited five years to start a re-entry you know, company or a microgravity manufacturing business, it's probably going to be too late. I think if you tried to do it five years ago, it's probably going to be too early um, and the environment wasn't going to be right. So I think it's people who live in this constant state of seeking opportunity. And when they go after opportunity, they go after it with gusto. Like that is really what you're looking for more than a silver bullet because the idea is just one part of the equation. The idea is like one very small part of the equation. The skill set to actually do go the distance with some of these is, is much more around can you build a team? Do you understand how to like, like build the right corporate culture, actually engineering culture? Do you know how to think about the right degree of risk to take? Do you know how to think of, communicate that to the, the, the triumvirate of your employees, your investors, and your customers? Do you know how to build a brand? All those kinds of things that, you know, for better or worse, early on, like they do emanate from the founders. They are largely just extensions of who the founders are. So finding those kind of N of one people that are uniquely suited 
to to go to do to solve the problem that they're proposing to solve. Call it founder market fit, like for 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 the cliche. Like that's largely what is even more important in these types of businesses versus um, you know versus a pure software business. Where I think it helps to have somebody who sold sales productivity software, but you probably could be a founder outside of it and then come into it. And then if you're good on sales and, and you have a good intuitive product sense, you could probably make something that's valuable. Interesting. I mean, that's, it's, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. There's not like, um, you don't lay out a blueprint to be a deep tech founder. Maybe my questioning was misaligned because of that, but everyone on this podcast I've spoken to who has achieved something I find incredible, they followed their curiosity and they kept getting better so that they could follow their curiosity more. Mm-hmm. Like life would, life would throw a blocker. And this is like, I had a runner on um, different business people, different VCs. And then as a result of the things that life throws at them, they get better and better and better at the thing. And then an opportunity comes and then they just go straight for that opportunity because they've already been, they've morphed into the person who can smash the opportunity. Yep. Yeah, I think that's why you oftentimes see like the best companies will be founded by people as kind of a, a second act after a first successful act. Um, I think the, mm. the odds, especially for these businesses, they're hard because it's, they require a lot of capital. It's hard to iterate quickly. There's a difficult story that you need to get a lot of people bought into. It takes a degree of credibility that's established to be able to do these businesses really well. Mm. Okay, well, in that case, on that thought, let's take it back to the start of Father Farms. You've been working for a few years. You've done some investing with Dawn Fund. Can you take us back there and think about what had you learned that you used and what gave you conviction that made you pursue the idea? So kind of, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I think at that time, a common theme in my career was you know doing great work with smart people smart ambitious people and that had served me well in the relatively short six or seven year career i had at the time and for me it just felt like the next opportunity was something more entrepreneurial and you know had a had a couple months of reflection where the ultimate conclusion was kind of like if not now then when Tomorrow's, you know, it's, it's always easy to say I'll do it tomorrow. It's very hard to say I'll do it right now. Um, and I think for me, you know, with my co-founder, with the market timing, with the caliber of talent and technology that a Cornell University Food Science was developing to be starting a company out of Cornell University Food Science, I think all of those things lined up to say, hey, I want to be part of taking a technology that has the potential to be globally impactful from a university that has a reputation for developing technologies in that category that are exceptional with a founder who was who you know co-founder who is mission driven um exceptionally talented you know values and mission aligned um and shared vision for kind of what what this could be that was it was kind of a bit of a no-brainer for me and then we made some real progress and we started to build some momentum raise some capital. And once we had the capital and I could pay myself a small salary, I was able to go full time, leave my job at, at, at the endowment and do it. So that's, um, that was kind of the journey from you know, the two of us in a business school class to, you know, 
a large Series A and and a bunch of uh, cool food processing equipment in upstate New York and some of the cool things we've been able to do there over the years. That's insane. So what was, so you had a conversation and saw the opportunity. What were like the first steps you had to follow? Was it? Yeah. Me. Yeah. I mean, credit to the, the business school class. I mean, it's very much like go basic stuff, like go do customer development, go talk to customers, figure out if they want the product you're proposing to sell, like understand the technology roadmap, like figure out what the capitalization of the business needs to be. What is your cash flow projections? Like what's the cost is going to take you to get this thing running? What are the key risks of the business? How do you manage those risks? And writing like a 30 page business plan at the time for a business school class. Yeah, that's funny. I, I, I don't invest in any businesses that have 30 page business plans these days, but um, <laughs> it was, you know, it's a good exercise to go through uh, when you're just at the front end of kind of an entrepreneurial journey. And it's an ac a very academic way of doing it relative to, I think, you know, putting a table out front, starting a lemonade stand. But I think it's important to have a forcing function of actually going and talking to customers. And and it's funny, we, we had an internship program the first summer after we started the company where we had five interns and I had two or three of them. Their whole job was literally just to go talk to restaurants and see, do like a sheet, interview the restaurant owner and collect information and data on the restaurant and actually talk to a customer. And for a lot of them, um, that was a new thing, but you do it, you get comfortable with it pretty quickly. And then it becomes a bit of a special skill that you have. Interesting. So you didn't speak to manufacturing people first. You spoke to the right at the end, the end customer. Yep. Exactly. Even though that wasn't your direct customer or is that, was that? Well, at the time it was, hey, we need to get some validation that people would want this product, how they would use it, what the killer use case would be for the end customer, and then work backwards to figure out how to finance the plant. Okay. Figure out how to finance the pilot plant, figure out how to size the pilot plant by getting some letters of intent from some of these people that they wanted the product itself. So it was talking to the end users to get there. Even if long-term we thought, hey, maybe we'll service them with actual product, but maybe we'll actually just put a technology layer. Okay. And now that you're big grown up, Mike, what would you look back on and say, I don't know why I did that or that was a mistake? And, um, or did you just smash out of the park know, first it's, time? It's, it's, <laughs> no, it's, 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 a, it's a good question. It's a good question. Um, I don't know that I would change any of my experience as a first time entrepreneur in that way because I think doing it in school over time allowed me to like learn, make mistakes, have tolerance for risk, um, figure out what worked, what didn't have a lot of support and mentorship to build the conviction that it takes to really like go out on your own. So it's a big leap for people to go from working at another you know, bigger institution, more stable opportunity with a long-term growth trajectory, and then take that leap into entrepreneurship where, you know, even finances aside, it's just, it's risky. It's for many people, it's the first time in their life where they've had to be ultimately responsible for the outcome of something. Um, and I think jumping into that two feet first is a very emotionally challenging thing to do if you've never been responsible for the outcome and been responsible for other people, been responsible for gathering resources that you need to pursue an uncertain mission with unclear with lack of clarity on whether or not it's going to be really valuable. So I think, um, I think kind of slow walking and building momentum over time was very useful for me, for my own entrepreneurial journey 
to give me, even now starting my own firm, I didn't hesitate at all because I've been living in a entrepreneurial lifestyle for seven years now. It's not foreign. Do you think, um, do you think it's a bigger risk to start a startup or to stay in a career? Um, bigger risk to start a startup. I, I, I think people need to do what, what they ultimately are having the most fun doing. They find the most joy in doing like the sum total that gets to the greatest number. If you could quantify how much fun you're having and how much joy you have in your day-to-day life, do whatever that is. I, I think everybody has a different risk tolerance. I think different moments in time have different risk calculations associated with them. I think taking a career first lens for a lot of people is can be a path to, to a life of unhappiness, quite honestly. So I think um, there's risks in both, right? I think there's, there's definitely risks if you just kind of are, are static and, and, and you, don't, you don't invest in yourself and you don't grow and you don't develop. But obviously, and those are maybe more intangible risks that are harder to quantify um, versus you go out and start a company and you have no salary, those risks are right in your face if you don't have uh, other means of income or, or wealth to kind of support yourself in the journey. Mm. How do you think about risk? And do you think, you know, the books like Thinking and Bets and things like that, have you got any thoughts on that? And is there anything that you do in your life to make bets? Yeah, so... I mean, obviously my, you're an investor, but aside yeah, from that. Yeah, 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 yeah. My, 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 I don't know that I have a really um, rugged framework for how I think about risk. What I tend to think about is more on the return side, which is I think people are good at understanding whether they should or shouldn't take a risk but they're not so good at understanding as whether or not they're actually getting compensated appropriately for the risk they're taking. Mm. So, you know, for me to, let's say, you know, start a venture firm and risk quote unquote, 50% higher base salary for the next five years. um, What does the return need to be for that? Right, what? How much do I have to exceed that number? And that's just a mathematical version. Now you may be able to discount count that by saying, "Well, I just love the day to day of what I'm doing. I love building this, so maybe it's actually less risky." For, I don't perceive that as a risk. Right? I think e- e- risk is individual at the end of the day, and it yeah. shifts with time. So I yeah. think it's a thing that constantly needs to be updated as you are developing. What I try to think about is the best as I'm kind of talking out loud here and, and getting to something maybe a little more interesting is the longer duration I think on, the better I am at making risk return decisions. Because if I think on a one-year time horizon, who knows? Very tough to predict 12 months out. But if I say, what am I going to do for the next decade and let me commit myself to it, then there really is risk there. But the odds of you being right 10 years out are, if you have one purpose in mind, are way higher than being right predicting one year out. And if you make it 20 years out, now if you say, hey, in 20 years, I want to be a U.S. congressman, what would you do if you had 20 years to become a U.S. congressman and work your way backwards? 
you, if you put your mind to it, you probably could figure it out. I think what happens is most people don't say in 20 years, this is what I want to do. So then when they have to make the little day-to-day decisions and they have to decide between A and B, they don't know what they're optimizing for. So from my perspective, when I say, you know, and I write about this, say, hey, I'm, I'm going to build, I want to build the best seed stage venture firm on the planet. And I'm going to do this for the next 30 plus years. It becomes very easy for me to say that my forcing function is always think about what the right thing is for the long term of the firm. And that's pretty easy, which is invest in great companies, invest in great founders and support them ferociously for the long term. Don't be transactional between the here and now. Yeah. And it comes through in the way you communicate and how you think and what your priorities are. Um, one of your essays that you wrote recently about having fun and play to win, that's what you're looking for, people who are having fun and playing to win. Mm-hmm. It just seems to be a better way to live than <laughs> what's put forward by lots of like hustle porn and things like this where it's saying like wake up at 6 a.m., go to the gym, do this, do that, do that. But at the end of the day, if you are having fun and you're playing the game that you want to play, first of all, you've already won. Second of all, you're most likely to win at that game because you can play it for the longest time. I saw an interesting thing where it was like 50% of a successful business or whatever is, or any endeavor is the idea, but probably not even that. And the other 50% is, or 50% is what you do each day, but the other 50% is how long you can do it for. Mm -hmm. So is that part of this have fun and play to win thesis? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's absolutely a compounding strategy. I think it's one of those... You try to make sure that people are having fun, that they're playing to win. You bring other people that are doing the same thing. They tend to help each other out. You tend to work harder. You tend to be able to see the optimism in things versus the pessimism in things. There, you know, there is a lot more. It's much more constructive. And I think constructive day-to-day people, people that are constructive on a day-to-day basis, are going to be way more successful in the long run. I think there will be winners in the short run who, you know, carry a big stick. I don't think have fun played and win means don't hold people accountable. I don't think it means, you know, have a low bar. I don't think it means be nice. I think it means have fun, find joy in what you're doing and do it because you love to win. Like that, that's what we're looking for here. This is, you know, this is still business it's still capitalism you have to have all those kinds of things but the mentality there is much more you know what are you doing to make this experience memorable because the be- the reality is just like the best founders have lots of choice on investors the best talent has lots of choice on which companies to join and if they they wanted to chase money they're probably not working in startups they're working there for a different reason and most people like to have fun that's the reality some people just want to work on ambitious problems and there's room for people like that. And, and that's fine. I mean, you need that too in venture, but I think the one thing where I think is the low hanging fruit that most companies don't have is they just don't have enough fun. They're too serious. You want people that are serious people. There's another phrase that, that don't take themselves too seriously. Interesting. Can you give us any case studies from your founders that you've worked with? Um, what that yeah, I mean, like. yeah, I, I, I I wrote about this in um, yeah. I wrote about this in that piece that you referenced you know, in our in our master plan, kind of the have fun, play, win thesis. Um, 
you know, to come back to Tavarda, I think the fun thing of Will getting a marching band when they shipped their first capsule off after it was completed and having the marching band kind of see off the capsule. Like, that's a memorable thing and a memorable moment that people really, really enjoy. I think, um, you know, in terms of... I'd say Will uh, doesn't sound like a... Will doesn't sound like a classic engineer. I studied engineering and he sounds special. Yeah, he's a good dude. He actually just walked by the the room and... Oh, no. (laughs) Um, um, But I think about, like, uh, we invested in a company called Cala, which is doing robotic restaurants in Paris. Um, and you just look at the brand, the irreverent brand that they've created and you go to the stores and you see that the, the customer is like seemingly having a good time. You see a bunch of kind of younger kids building robots in the shop that are then being installed in a restaurant and like seeing them in the world and they're working until 2 AM, you know, doing low tolerance DNC machining, like they're having a good time. It's fun. And they're, that shows in the product they put out on the field, right? I think that's, that's, that's a really cool one, and you should check them out if you haven't seen them. But, but um, you know, Alon is is a great is a great founder in that regard, where he he's very serious, he's very ambitious, he's very technically capable and talented. He's built a really great team. He's super gritty, super persistent. But you talk to him, and like he's he's cool, calm, collected. Seems like he's had fun. You know, enjoying, like, he's enjoying going to the stores and making sure that they're working on time. He's enjoying working through the manufacturing of the robots that they're building. All those kinds of things. It seems like he's really having a good time. How's it spelled? The name? C-A-L-A. I think the website is E-C-A-L-A. E-A-T-C-A-L-A. I want to understand why their brand is irreverent, but I also would like to know when you invested... Obviously, you've got more data points now, so you can look back and say that all these things about him. But what what was it that stood out about him when you invested? Yeah, I think um, I you know I knew some people that were around the table and knew him really well. Um, yeah, there's a fun story I'll, I'll tell about Elon. Is as we were getting to know each other, he was like, "Hey, you know, do you know these people you could introduce me to?" And I threw out the idea. I said, hey, you know what? I think a lot of them are going to be you know, in this area next week. I said, you should, I know it's in four days. You should just come over and I'll introduce you and see if you can get together with all of them at the same time. And he thought about it and he was like, you know what? I'll do it. So we spent the weekend kind of making introductions, setting up meetings. And now that he booked his ticket, then I was helping him try to get his passport so he could come, not his, his visa, so he could come over uh, I didn't find out until weeks later that it was the first time he'd ever come to the U.S. <laughs> and he came on four-day notice and had a bunch of good meetings. And everybody introduced him, said how great he was and like his passion, enthusiasm, how that all kind of came through. And that was a memorable moment for me because you know, for him, it's a blast. Like get on a plane and go to Miami. Look, that's awesome on a short notice. Um, those are the kinds of things that that make startup memories. And you know, I've got a bunch of those myself. Um, from my own experiences, but I think doing those things show somebody serious that they care. It's amazing how just getting on the plane um, on short notice is actually such a good indicator of, of wanting to make it happen. Yeah, and that, coming back to when we were talking about risk, I think what the difference was between the risks we were talking about, one was a financial risk and one was the risk of not pursuing your passion. And it okay. seems like this just made me think of when people stop 
their idea, like, oh, I don't want to pay for a plane ticket because it costs $1,000. It's like, that's money, which is a terrible way of accounting for anything worthwhile. So I guess part of it is just saying like, fuck it, I'm going to fly to Miami tomorrow, spend the whole weekend, meet all these people, and then change the course of my company. Yep. Yeah, I think I think people are drawn to that degree of zeal, which is a whole you know side thing of, of a yeah, I think that's a, a vocabulary word that needs to be used more in the industry is kind of enthusiasm and energy in pursuit of an idea. But I think the minute you lose that, it's usually the beginning of the end. But I think when you have it and you demonstrate it, it shows people you're in it, that you're all in. And that gets them over a lot of the open questions and hurdles that they may have. How do the best founders demonstrate grit and persistence so that their team are A, enticed to join and then B, encouraged to keep working hard on the problems they're solving? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that it's formulaic. I think every founder has their own way of doing it. I, I think ultimately the way I would answer the question is the best founders lead and they don't coddle their team, but they don't, they don't um, tell them what they want to hear. They tell them what needs to be said, but they do it in a respectful way that comes from a position of um, credibility that's built over years of doing what you say you're going to do, which builds trust. Um, the best leaders are have the trust of their team. And right? it's the the Buffett thing, right? Like takes years to build and five minutes to lose. And so it's a fragile it's a fragile thing. Um, but I don't I don't think I don't think people follow grit or persistence. I think they follow leadership and leaders. And the reality is it's the person who can kind of navigate the stresses of being in the founder seat or in the CEO seat while also maintaining kind of a calm, collected, stable presence for other people that are probably feeling the same thing the founder's leaving. And that's maybe the hardest job of any founder, especially a first-time founder that's never had to do that before. It's projecting confidence, conviction, uh, and intentionality amidst a sea of uncertainty. Um, and how do you, how do you overcome that? How do you articulate that to your team? How do you inspire them um, in the face of all of that? It's easy to do when you're winning, when you're raising big rounds or when the revenue is up and to the right, it's easy to do. I think the best founders are tried by the hardest times. And that's maybe obvious to say. Um, and I can keep it in my own experiences where I might've been able to do things a little better or a little differently and other experiences where I felt like we navigated it really, really well. I understand what you're saying and I can imagine, I think the words almost don't do it justice because the, the, the leader has to take, they might hear news that the money they needed to extend their runway and continue the business has just fallen through, but they can't tell the team. So their world has just fallen apart, but they have to internalize that. How, how do you do that? What, did you have any big things where you had to, as you say, project a happy version of you? Do you have a support network around you who you like lean on? How do you navigate being a leader in that sense? Yeah. I, 
part of being a leader is being able to communicate bad news while also projecting a path, you know, presenting a path forward. Um, the more you can do that, the more people start to build confidence in your ability to navigate those ups and downs. So, okay, the big money we needed to get to the next stage isn't going to come through. Now what? Right? Well, there's a difference between we're going to keep talking to other investors and we'll let you know. And, you know, the money just fell through. But me and Jennifer and Steve, the leadership team, are leaving right now to go to XYZ place to spend the weekend putting our heads together and figuring out how we're going to solve this problem. If you'd like to participate in that, let us know. Happy to include because it's all hands on deck to make this thing work. Or it fell through. We've been trying to raise for nine months. We don't think it's going to happen. Um, we're making the difficult decision to do X, Y, Z. Here's what that means for you and your families. And here's how we're going to communicate that to you and work through all the details. Right? Action. People respect action, not words. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. And also in this day and age, I feel like people have start, started to forget that you can actually take action in the real world. You can knock on offices. You can go and visit people. It doesn't have to be, right, I'm going to go and send 100 cold emails. You can get out there and, and do things. Yeah. What was the hardest part of Father Sons? The hardest part? For you. Um... I think the hardest part was learning how to manage people with the right degree of, with the right blend of transparency and um, well, wait, let me see. Finding the right degree of information to share that gave people what they needed to move forward, but also not not having a position on an, on a topic, right? So it really was like that leadership piece of knowing how to be the rock for them, but also not coddle them and, and, and not you know, kind of share exactly what was going on. Um, I think that was an art. That's definitely an art form. I think you go out, you get punched in the mouth by the market, by the technology you're trying to develop. I think navigating that, which I, I think we actually did quite, quite well and had some very, supportive investors and board members that that continue to be critical to the success of the company to this point. Um, I think all of that together just comes down to people and learning how to manage people, um, not in like a corporate kind of way, but more from a human psychology kind of way. Um, that That's the biggest learning for me. And it's something I'm still learning how to do this effectively maintain positive relationships in the face of uncertainty and difficult, difficult challenges, how to make hard decisions, how to communicate those hard decisions while maintaining your values orientation and being true to your values. Let's say, um, I don't know, a team member or an investor or some partner did you wrong 
Um, and this is kind of a pertinent question to things that are happening in the world at the moment. How does the how do the best leaders respond to a attack out of vulnerability from another person? Or an attack for some reason for another person? I mean, it, it, to a certain extent, the best leaders are supposed to represent the will of the people they represent. The main reason why, once you start losing the culture of an organization, it's very hard for that leader to recover the culture or to recover the trust of the team. Um, and it, it requires spending one-on-one -on -one time with team members. It requires having ongoing conversations. It requires... Um, understanding more than you might think exactly what your people are up to on a day-to-day -day basis so you can understand the pulse of the organization, the will of the organization at any given point in time. Um, so I think if you're doing that job and you're doing it really, really well, then I think you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. I think that's that's ultimately what it is. So there could be, and the, the parallel I'm drawing now is in... Football in the UK, you might call it soccer, but I would firmly disagree. <laughs> um, they have teams and they swap the managers out, some teams very frequently to try and get results. But from what you said, it seems like once an organization reaches a certain size, it has a life and desire of its own. And therefore, mm -hmm. leader from this position won't necessarily suit that club. So you need to find someone who is able to represent the will of that, that group of people. And yep. you can't change the will of that group of people. Yeah, I, th I think that's I think that's right. Those those are the best organizations, is because that leader, if they're appropriately tapped into the pulse of the organization, they can make decisions on behalf of the organization way more quickly and set direction with way more conviction than somebody who doesn't have the pulse of the organization. Because at the end of the day, all these things are about how fast can we get stuff done, how fast can we execute, how fast can we hire, all those kinds of things. The more in tune you are with the people and the relationships between your people, the more effective you're going to be able to be as a leader. That's just a fact. And it doesn't matter where your credentials are. People don't respect credentials. It doesn't matter what you did in the past. What matters is the respect that people feel you have for them and the respect they have for you. So when you have to make a difficult decision or you have to set a company direction that people get behind you vigorously and they move, and that's what it takes, especially especially so in startups. I'm really interested. I find it very hard looking from the outside to work out what different leaders do in different situations. And I'm sure that's obviously a hugely broad question. But on a general sense, what's like the profile or day-to-day -day activities of a seed stage founder who's taking, let's say, seed to series B and then a sort of CEO at IPO level and then a board director, and what, how do their responsibilities vary? Yeah, I mean, I think as a, as a seed stage founder, you kind of have one job, which is find product market fit. <laughs> you know, it's maybe a little more nuanced with, with tech businesses, but generally speaking, it's find product market fit and try to do that as resource efficiently as you can without burning out. Um, I think when you talk about uh, you know, a CEO of a public company, that CEO is very much, in, you know, in, in, entrusted with a very large organization who serves a lot of people in terms of its customers and also 
maintains a culture of its employees and you are very much, um, I almost would say a politician and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but I think it comes back to this idea of leadership is understanding the will of the people that make the product that you sell and the will of the people who buy the product that you sell and sitting in the middle and figuring out how do I optimize the resources to do more of that? How do I grow my business? How do I give more opportunity to my employees? How do I create more value for my customers? And all of that is putting the right pieces on the chessboard, the right people playing the game at the different points in time. So it is very much a human psychology position, uh, understanding your investor psychology, understanding your board member psychology, understanding your employees and leadership psychology. Um, with respect to your question on board members, um, I think the best board members have the right blend of experience, empathy, and leadership skills to coach the management team into decisions that help them drive the business forward. Um, oftentimes it's not done in board meetings. It really shouldn't be done in the board meetings. I think it's done in one-on-one -on -one phone calls. I think it's done subtly. I think it's done in a tactful manner. That's what the best board members are able to do. And it, it all is built on a foundation of trust. I think it's very hard to have board members that you don't have an innate trust and alignment with. Um, I think doing that work to build trust allows you to have people that help you cover your blind spots, but there needs to be a really high bar for the people that you give access to that level of access to that have that level of information um, that are able to guide you or you're willing to let guide you and making decisions because ultimately, in, especially in startups, right? I think public companies are a different kind of thing, but in startups, it's the founder's company. It's the CEO's company. The board is there to support the founder, look after their um, investment and make sure that, that where things are moving in a positive direction and when it's not, be there to support um, in tweaking you know, the ship, the direction of the ship a little bit here and there. Um, so I think there's lots of different types of board members that can add value. But generally speaking, I think if you're if you're a CEO trying to build out an early board, that's really what you're looking for is somebody you trust, but somebody who you think can hold you accountable, can can support you through difficult times, and can navigate um, that that boardroom. So, as a board member yourself, if you thought that a founder was taking the wrong direction, how would you leverage your understanding of human psychology to? suggest a new way forward because i'm i'm yes. basically I'm, I'm assuming you can't tell them you have to either show them or make them realize themselves yeah so i've been on boards since i was 24 i was on a nonprofit board in new york city for a bunch of years i managed my board of eight people for five or six years at farther farms i've been on the varda board for the last three years um i'm by no means the most expert person on venture boards or anything like that. But um, yeah, I've seen enough things over the years of kind of what, what has worked and what, what doesn't work. Um, yeah, so your question was around, you know, if I felt they were going in the wrong direction. I, I think the big thing is my job is not to express my opinion without in, – in a, in a group format – that is uninformed or without being asked specifically. My job is to be there asking intelligent questions that drives at 
the at the that drives it whether or not we're taking the right risks and whether or not we're investing our resources in a way that eliminate or reduce the right risks. And it's more about getting the founder or the management team that may happen to be there to talk out loud about their thought process of how they're making decisions. It's not to make decisions for the management team. That's the management team's job. The board's job is just to understand the psychology of how the management team is, is making their decisions and by extension, how they're thinking about the business and what's most important, which can provide leading indicators of where we should be investing our time to dive deeper, either in a committee or in one-on-one -on -one time or in a site visit, whatever it may be, um, using our resources to help solve the problems, to you know, asking questions to help suss out what the real root cause of challenges may be. But they need to be at the appropriate layer of abstraction that you don't just plug a leak and then spring another leak. If you need to change the captain, you change the captain. But I think that takes some time to get to that point. Um, and, and that's not even a specific reference to the CEO. It's more of a, a sticking with the maritime reference. Um, so so that's, that's kind of how I think about the role of the board. And how does, this is now going to be a completely junior question. How does do the board members, are they all investors? Is that how they get compensated? Or is that like... I mean, most of the time, yes, but but not always. Um, you know, when, when certain companies reach certain levels of maturity, you may get um, independent board members that, that come on. Um, when, uh, when you have public company boards, you know, those board members will be paid in stock in the company and they'll be paid in cash oftentimes for venture boards, you know, up to Series C, Series D, something like that. It's usually just the investors and the preferred um, are, are, are taking board seats and maybe some in the common as well. So there's like, I don't think there's hard and fast rules. I do think there's heuristics for different stages though. Okay. That sounds fascinating. I wish that people would, um, live stream their board meetings, but yeah. <laughs> that's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, coming back to Carla and you said they had an irreverent brand. First of all, great language. Second of all, what makes an irreverent brand for a deep tech company? What do you think the, the, what is the point of that for them? Um, I don't know that I think about like deep companies, irreverent brands. I, I think, you know, for Kala, it's more about its customers, like the tone that they've iterated to, which works for their initial customer base. And over time, maybe it changes. Um, you, you, that tone of voice may change over time to be static. I think that's the thing with brands is that a lot of times they'll iterate the message as they appeal to different audiences and try to increase the audience they can go after. Um, what I think is important on the brand side for deep tech businesses, more generally speaking, is that you speak to someone and you say something. Um, more often, people talk about we're building this cool technology. We're building a giant Dyson sphere. And that'll be cool, some engineers, but I think the reality is, you know, a lot of people probably just want to go home and be able to explain simply what they do to their grandmother. And it's a lot easier to say I'm doing in-space manufacturing than I'm developing low-cost reentry capsules for manufacturing crystalline structures and microgravity, you know? Um, so I think being able to articulate that 
allows you know, your K factor, your virality to increase. It allows you to differentiate from other companies. It makes you memorable where a broad range of people will become engaged in what you're doing. So much of venture and startups is about getting people from non-consensus to consensus. And that starts with getting people excited about the idea that you're pursuing, which gets you the capital and the talent to go execute. And the execution gets you the customers. The customers validate the idea. Next thing you know, you look back seven years later and you say, oh, you know, that was pretty easy, but it started with the kernel of an idea and getting people excited about the potential for that idea. And then what do you think are the key parts of specifically frontier tech and deep tech? What are the key parts of their brand? Is it the scientist team? Is it the founder? Is it the visual methods of communication they use language? Yeah, I, I think the founder has a lot to do with it. Um, I don't think you can ignore the impact of the founder on, um, on the brand, on the perception of the brand, on the story that's being told. Um, it's just the, you can't kind of shake it. I think all the other stuff is really validating of the founder themselves and their approach. Hmm. It's a great website. If it's a great low, if it's a great logo, if it's a great pitch deck, I think all those things emanate from the founder themselves. And it's, I guess, especially at the stage where you invest, because at that stage it is the people. But then, okay, so let's say the founders got the investment, and now they're trying to build the best team, and they've already got a few good team members. What then? What then do they need to have? find the best team and attract them and keep them. Yeah, I just think there's no substitute for word of mouth. I think when you reach out cold to an engineer, which I've done hundreds of times in my life, um, having them know who you are, having some credible stories out there about you, I think is really important. I don't know how you recruit engineers without a website unless you already know them really well and they respect you. Um, that's where I think the brand really comes into play is and you know, a great propulsion engineer is being asked to leave SpaceX to go work at your company. They have to go home to their girlfriend or wife or significant other, whatever it might be at that particular point, um, and say, hey, I got asked to join this company. And they, the girlfriend or wife or significant other Googles the company and says, I've never even heard of this company. <laughs> this seems a little bit sketchy, right? Now, all of a sudden, you can't hire that engineer. So great, great technology. Maybe you got some great investors, but being able to get some credibility out there quickly is a critical part of being able to build that early team uh, because of these kind of more subtle things under the surface. Yeah, interesting. One of my best friends from uni is an incredible engineer, and he started working for an engineering consultancy firm in Cambridge in the UK. And yeah. he, he talks about his founders, and one of them has, I can't remember if it's road across the Atlantic or run across America. But for him, like that was like a signifier that this person is serious and he yep. takes his life seriously and he's able to overcome difficulties. And as a result, yep. his, his belief in that person is very tangible and it's quite cool to see that. Mm -hmm. So what other, we've talked about space, which I'm guessing you've got a whole um, thesis on, but what other technologies are appealing to you? at the moment. Yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big, like, this technology is exciting to me because I think people build technology. 
authentic people develop the best technology at the speed that you couldn't even contemplate. Um, so I, I think, you know, if there were any high level things that, that get me excited and, and what I've thought a lot about this is, you know, what is the common thread? Um, it's, you've heard me say this word a bunch today. Um, it's the idea of authenticity. I just think the next decade or two is really going to be about that. Um, information and insights and content has become so abundant and so cheap. I think anything that is authentic in nature is going to be amongst the most demanded things out there in the world. Um, and I think hardware fits squarely into that. There's no way to fake hardware. I think if you build something real and put it into the world, it's going to feel real. And a lot of people are going to want to work on those kinds of problems and build those kinds of things. But you want it to be something that gets into the real world, not something that's maybe necessarily invisible to the real world. So if it's nuclear reactors, if it's robots in restaurants, if it's you know bioreactors, if it's space manufacturing, if it's um, you know phased array towers, stealth towers, right? Like those kinds of things are the things that you're going to look at and say like that was an exciting problem to work on and i made my family proud i made money we built something cool we have a culture i was proud to be a part of establishing all those things like that's i think what we're looking for and there's a broad range of stuff i think it's space energy climate ai healthcare you know i think those are all sorts of areas and finding the intersections of all those right underlying commodity type technologies that have been developed and now saying okay now that you know RF transmitters are sufficiently small or low power, what can we do? Or said differently, what have we been wanting to do but now can only do because RF transistors are small? That's the way I actually think about technology is what can we for ventures? What can we do with it now that the investment dollars have brought something to the point where it's more in the application phase or the technology or the technology deployment phase? So would you say you're not necessarily a tech nerd then? more of a people nerd. Look, I think fun fact about me, I've never really written a code, a line of code in my life outside of <laughs> Boolean logic in, in Excel, building very complex models in Excel. Um, and I've never, you know, designed an integrated circuit in my life, for example, right? Like I've never done that. Um, but I like all that stuff. You know, I grew up playing with Legos as a kid, building lots of Lego sets. And, and, and I love playing video games and, strategy games and civilization games and things like that. So I like building things. I like creating things. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a technology nerd, but I love having people explain to me how things work and why they work. And you know, my, my wife may get annoyed with me sometimes when I express my curiosities in some of these things and try to explain them and say, no, this is so cool. You got to see how this thing, where this thing's. And she's just like, yes, I get it. I get it. And then she's very tolerant, patient. She likes it sometimes, but sometimes, you know, my curiosity gets the better. I think what you want is the people who are focused less on tinkering and more on building. I think it starts with an enthusiasm and a curiosity, but I think it needs to be focused with action towards outcome, where that outcome is a product that's being shipped. I think that's probably where we see the biggest attrition in things that sound interesting on paper versus things we can actually invest in is people who have a dedicated history of a demonstrated history of, of building the thing they say they're going to build versus saying they're going to try to build the thing. Mm. So I guess that everyone, it's easy to get that feeling of excitement when you've discovered like an idea. 
it's then yeah. easy to be successful when you're successful in that idea. But what's hard is crossing the huge chasm of work between those two milestones. Yeah. 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 Um, is there a flywheel that you're expecting at also capital that you like imagine is going to come? So the more you do X, it leads back in and sort of makes an exponential. Yeah, I think it gets, it gets, it gets back to the, um, I think it gets back to the, the master plan, right? Invest in great founders, write bigger checks into great founders, and then keep, keep doing that for three decades. And I think we'll be amazed where we'll be at that point in time. And I have, I have conviction in that. If you keep a high bar, you support founders to go succeed. They have a certain level of success. They try, they go again. They, they come back to you again because you were the right partner. Um, yeah, I think all of that is, I think that's the way to success. There's no shortcut for it. Yeah, that's amazing. So if you strip it all back, there's a VC fund essentially a network of incredible people more or less and then as you have founders who come through also and you give them money they exit they become the board members of tomorrow who suggest ways to use their technology with other technology and things like that yeah i think that's right yeah fascinating what an amazing business what an amazing business what is your what is your dream i'm living my day-to-day dream you know i'm talking to you from a beautiful conference room in the presidio in in san francisco um i'm getting sent pictures of my two beautiful girls um from the day that they're having and i'll be home to see them on saturday about to you know go into a, a board meeting of one of the most exciting companies on the planet right now and i'm in the middle of growing you know what i what i think has the potential to be one of the best seed funds on the planet after starting a company from a napkin and taking that through to potentially impact you know, one of the largest food value chains in the world. I wouldn't change any of that. Um, this is the best life. This is the best life. That is unreal. You are li- you're living it. You're living the dream. That is sick. That was actually, I know you need to go to this board meeting, which... Yeah. Honestly, I wish you just wore a GoPro all day. I would watch the live stream of just what happens. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the one thing I did think of is that I'm interested to in know what being a dad taught you about life. I've been saying recently to folks, I said nothing clarifies the mind quite like having two kids under three years old. I think what it's, what it's taught me is what's most important in my life, which is being able to find the right blend of being able to be there for you know my spouse my kids my family um, while also being able to pursue the professional ambitions that give me the most joy um, I think having kids basically says hey your time is short and valuable make sure that you're being very discerning uh, who you're spending that time with and how you're spending that time uh, I think that's the biggest thing that 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 having kids really teaches is the making poor decisions with your time has a much greater cost now, and you need to really be thoughtful about that. Mm. I think people always react to sort of constraints and difficulty and 
being overloaded as a negative thing. But what I'm hearing mm-hmm. from you is the right constraint actually streamlines your decision making to the point where you're actually making better decisions and you've got more time doing what you love. It's it's that feeling means it's time to evolve. And it's evolve how you think, what you spend your time on, the prices you charge for your services, right? I think the minute you start to get overloaded, time to rethink and evolve. I think that's the best indicator that you can find. It's not stay the same and build structures for how to be less overloaded. It's move the bar. Mm. Well, one amazing way to end. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure. It really has. And I'm so excited that we've met. And I'm so excited to see what happens over the next few decades. Because I really think that this, what you're building, is going to impact millions of lives for the better. Billions even. And I mean, yeah, what, what other measure is there? That's incredible. So yeah, I'm excited to see. Yeah, Really appreciate it, Ali. And thanks so much for give me the opportunity to come on and chat. Anytime, anytime you want to come back, you're more than welcome. (laughs) Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Sweet. All right, man. Welcome to Brick by Brick, episode 18, with Mike Annunziata, founding partner of Also Capital, co-founder of Farther Farms, and board member at Varda Space. This is going to be a big one.